This is episode 111 of Caucus Talk, your source for culture, history, and tourism in the North Caucasus mountains of Russia. My name's Andrew. And my name is Eli. One thing that uh, we can say, Andrew, is that it's we're pretty easy to spot in the North Caucasus sometimes as foreigners. To spot, to hear. Yes. To hear our, the way our children conduct, can carry themselves in, in public. Um, and, you know, it's actually not a bad thing because we are foreigners and we meet a lot of other foreigners. We have a guest coming up today who is a foreigner who we met in the North Caucasus. But before we introduce yes. him, you know, Andrew, you made a good point. Like we've met other, well, how did you put it? Random expats <laughs> in the North Caucasus. <laughs> no yep. offense. We're random ex. I mean, you know. It's okay. Um, and sometimes, yeah, there's some pretty good stories. Yeah, it's true. Um, it, it, you just totally get unused to hearing the English language in the streets. And so if you ever hear it, it totally takes you off guard. So I'm going to actually start with a story that happened to my wife two weeks ago. Um, she gathered with a couple of the other expat uh, moms in our city, and they had dinner. It was like ladies' night out. Mm-hmm. And they're sitting at this table and they're, you know, just having conversation and at the table beside them in the middle of their conversation, this guy turns around and says in perfect American English, you guys are speaking American English. What in the world are you doing here? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they were of course taken aback because clearly he was an American and they said something to the tune of, well, we live here. Our husbands work here. What, what are you? Do- you what are you here? doing here? <laughs> and it, it turns out this guy is from Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York. He was Debatable married to a whether Russian. That's perfect American English, but we'll get back to that time. <laughs> but he was married to a Russian, and she was from our area. Was it was his first time ever visiting, and he said to them, "Guys." That this place is crazy. I, I've got to get home soon. <laughs> <laughs> But wow. basically, like they, they talked a little bit, and he said, "Wow, you you like remind me so much of home." But such a, they were at, sitting at the table beside each other. It was so random. Does that bode well for this gentleman's marriage? <laughs> I I don't know. We <laughs> they never found out what it was. He thought was so crazy. Um, yeah, but yeah, that was two weeks ago. There we go, man. I mean. I think one story I have actually made it, uh, turned into a podcast interview, but it was a similar thing. I was in a cafe, actually, I was in a cafe in Mahachkala and there was uh, a guy with a video camera videoing someone and I wanted to make connections with people doing media. So I talked to this, this young guy and he, uh, talked with me a little bit, but then the waiter heard me speaking to him in English. It's like, oh, you speak English. And then he points across the cafe. He's like, that guy speaks English. You should meet him. And so he like, he creates this meeting between us. Hey guys, get together. Like you need to talk. And that was Taksin, who if you guys, if our listeners, you remember, uh, he runs Rise and Glide, which does sports tourism in Dagestan. He, he's into mixed yep. martial arts and he brings people on trips to train with, with, with MMA guys in in Dagestan, but it was like very much of a kind of blind date feel. It was like, so hey, <laughs> I'm supposed to get to know you. <laughs> the waiter, the waiter said we had a lot in common, so we should probably talk. <laughs> 
that was the ideal introduction. I mean, he ended up on our podcast. It was a great guest. It was episode 60 something. I think it was 67. The ideal outcome for any relationship. Is ending up on the- <laughs> Do you want to know the weirdest one for me? Since you mentioned American accents, my wife and I were in a little um, mini mart right next to the university, actually, when we lived in Pitygorsk, and we heard okay. this kid speak absolutely American English. And he had this uh-huh. long blonde hair kind of flopped over to one side and he was wearing tight black pants. And it was very kind of, I don't know, millennial emo. I don't know what he was, but different <laughs> generation. And we're like, did you hear that? And so we chased him out of the place. We're like, Hey, and he didn't really seem to want to talk to us. He was <laughs> Russian who just had listen, Like he had the, a perfect American accent just from watching oh my goodness he'd never been to the u.s like he didn't have any and so we were totally floored and a little bit um sobered in just watch walk him to strangers based on their accent but anyway where was who was he speaking english to i don't know another student i guess (laughs) another part of this mystery that still needs to be solved um wow that's awesome um you know i have multiple stories I could share where people heard us speaking in public with our family and stopped us in our tracks and said, you guys are speaking American English. Um, just, just two days ago, I'm not exaggerating. Uh, we were at the upper market food court in Pitygorsk and my wife and I were having lunch and I heard a man speaking a foreign language at the table beside us, but it was just so loud. I couldn't figure out what the language was. And um, I kind of forgot about it. And then before we know it, he had pulled his chair up to our table and said, so where are you guys from <laughs> in English? <laughs> and he, w- he was French from France. He had a Russian wife and their two kids, and they had just moved to Pitygorsk. Um, yeah, but totally random. I, yeah, there are it, hazards in this. I just have to throw in one more. It's not my story. It has nothing to do with the North Caucasus, <laughs> but it's too good. It was. It's actually my business partner, and he had been overseas and got kind of accustomed to being able to speak in English with his travel mates kind of with impunity because no one where he was spoke English. Right. And so they would they would comment on people and in say things just right in front of him because it was, you know, (laughs) so, but he's back in the States and like his second day back, he's in line at Target. And there was, I don't remember exactly, but some like really big dude, but with long greasy hair that he thought was funny. And he turns to his friend. He's like right behind the guys, like check out this dude's hair. (laughs) (laughs) And the guy turns around and all of a sudden my friend was like, Ooh, and remembered (laughs) Realized that he was back in the U.S. And the guy says, do we have a problem? And my friend literally (laughs) just drops his groceries and left. He didn't even check out. (laughs) He just left. That is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So think twice. Think twice. (laughs) What a great story. I love it. Well, um, yeah. Uh, My How I Met Our Guest Today is... Not quite as exciting and interesting as that. But our guest is as exciting as interesting as that. That's right. It was unexpected. And uh, what a fantastic um, kind of relationship we've developed over the years. Built together with a common love of the North Caucasus. Um, Welcome to the podcast for the second time, Ian Tuttle from Nebraska. Woo! Welcome back, Thanks, guys. Glad to be back. Ian, Ian rank you rank as not only our number one listener. And number one, like, soulmate, I guess, around the (laughs) caucuses. 
But like the only one you you are the closest anyone has come to actually being a mascot or at least representative of the podcast. I mean, you have carried the caucus talk flag to other you know in other continents on our behalf. So there is. Well, I was going to say he. I mean, Ian uh, is the most likely to take over the podcast from <gasps> us. Great, um, great idea. Yeah, you're hired. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyways, Ian, welcome. It's it's great to have you here. It's great to be back, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, Ian, we uh, I uh, I don't remember the context. I remember it was some gathering of students, but I remember meeting you for the first time uh, at the the university here in Pitigorsk, and totally was not expecting to meet a fellow American. Um, but yeah, we, uh, became good friends and, um, yeah, I, I remember correctly. It was our first, first, like not, not the first meeting for, um, English club, but like the prep meeting, like when you had all the English speakers right. come over and yes. then they were like, Oh, how do we want to run the program? How do we want to do it this year? That kind of thing, that kind of spiel. And that's where we, we officially had, had met. And I knew through, uh, Josh and his family, I had right. heard, your name pop up. And so the name was familiar, but I finally got a face to a name gotcha. after a year of, of, of hearing, hearing about you through Josh. Gotcha. So. Yeah. And Josh, he and I, uh, he's my business partner and we're running beyond red square now. Um, some of the few remaining ones, but, um, yeah, well, it's great to have you here on the show Ian. uh, congratulations are in due. Our listeners are due. Our, pro- our listeners probably don't know, but you had your first child this past year. Congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate that. Thank you. Please tell the name because this is awesome. Her name is Ksenia. Ooh. I had a baby daughter. She was born on uh, December 21st on the solstice. Beautiful. And uh, we, uh, my wife and I were thinking about names we liked, and we really liked Ksenia. It's a beautiful Russian name. Um, there is also a, a, a woman I, who I met my first year in Russia who was a senior at the time, uh, and she was – Really, really kind, very compassionate, really helped me adjust from, mm-hmm. you know, my, my American life to my Russian student life. And so uh, I kind of named my daughter after her. Um, the name means mm. from the Greek coming from someone who's hospitable wow. originally. There we go. So someone who's huh. kind, hospitable. So I thought, I thought the name really fit. There, he, was, he was glad they didn't have a boy because they, the Eli and Andrew on the name list, like they couldn't know, they didn't know how they were going to pick which one they were going to pick <laughs> for that. So <laughs> by having a girl is easier for this time. Oh my. So Eli, uh, <laughs> first quiz question for you today. Oh yay. So listeners, Ksenia is a common, uh, Russian female name. Uh, that's the long formal version. What is the shortened version of Ksenia? Uh, the shortened informal version of Ksenia would be like Ksenia like some longer version that's actually a diminutive. I don't know, Cassie. So, so uh, for me, it's Krasush, and then there's Krasuja and Krasujanka. Krasusha, Those are three Krasusha, I've heard. Yeah, yep. these all sound I actually like have... pastry names to me. Like, a... yeah, my. <laughs> it's because the because they, they're so sweet. That's there why. There you go. Yeah, but there you go. That um, sometimes the short name doesn't sound much like the longer name, but it's Krasusha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Krasusha. Uh, um, well, in, um, that I have, I mean, for years wanted to talk about this topic today and also for years knew I was way in over my head, uh, trying to figure out how could I, with any sort of authority, talk about this topic. So at some point I realized Ian needs to talk about yeah. 
yeah. this topic with us. Um, <laughs> and yeah, you've, you've put together kind of a great uh, outline for us today. So um, we're talking about the Cossacks. I don't know if that struck a chord with any of our listeners. Um, I'm, I'm sure it did I'm with sure, some. I'm sure if they're familiar with most 19th century liter- literature and even uh, the film uh, American Tale uh, from the 90s, they'll, they'll know at least the name of Cossacks. Yeah, um, Cossacks, um, you're right. Uh, the writings of Pushkin and Tolstoy and Lermontov and some of the other authors from the 19th century, they feature very prominently. and because they featured very prominently in that part of time of history in this part of the world. So we're going to kind of dive right in. Um, We're going to start big picture and then get specific about their role kind of in the Caucasus past and um, Caucasus present. So um, Eli, why don't you start off by telling us um, who is this group of people, the the Cossacks, what does that name mean? Um, Is it, You know, when I picture them, I always picture like a group of soldiers in the Caucasus-like uniform, Mm -hmm. but are they actually their own ethnic group? Why don't we start there, kind of back it up for our listeners to give context. And I'm just going to go ahead and say, it's okay that you called him Eli, because I got that all throughout high school. Ian and Eli, easy to mix up. But for a second, my (laughs) eyes were wide, like, tell you what? Oh, he didn't mean me at all. I thought it's... That's it's too funny because like a lot of our our fellow listeners on the po- on the podcast like they confuse Eli and myself our names up all the time. So when they're like when I'm on message board on Facebook and we're talking about whatever in the Cox is say food for example, it's so, oh Eli said this like and they're oh wait Ian said this never mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So carry on. So yeah, to, great, to the first great question. question. Great question. So the the Cossack the word itself comes likely from a Turkic origin. Primarily Cuban Turkic, so around the the Black Sea Crimean area, okay, which means like a, fr- a free man or unbound man, and these were originally groups of of men, uh, military societies who got together who were either um, criminals or bandits or or freed serfs from either the the Muscovite state during the time of the the middle of the 18th century, or also from communities in, in Poland and Ukraine. Okay. Who um, got off of their their uh, surfed uh, surf land since they were former serfs uh, became free and established uh, a livelihood by raiding and trading along the uh, Dniester and Dnieper rivers in um, Ukraine. Hmm. Now, what's interesting about them is that this particular group of individuals was that they were usually communities which were entirely made up of men. Women do not become a part of the, the, the Cossack community too much later on. Huh. Um, so these are primarily military communities, which have like kind of a, a martial brotherhood together. Um, and they, they raided the trade around the rivers and caused a lot of um, hullabaloo for the both Russian <laughs> state and the uh, uh, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth along with the Ottoman Empire. So these three military powers tried to then co-opt for lack of a better word their talents as soldiers so 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 just to clarify there's nothing ethnic about this group it's a voluntary association not not yet um they they are a voluntary association in the beginning beginning. um how in 150 years they will become what we now think of as ethnic group because they have their own their own culture they have their own vocabulary okay. um, mainly in terms of they use they use Russian and or Ukrainian but they have gotcha. their own words um, and they have their own um, folk ways or norms and was there some centralizing gravitational pull to that area and to marauding for these guys I mean what got them so organized to become known as a group. 
or is it? Oh yes. Is it just yeah, a um, good, good idea spread fast kind of thing? I mean, <laughs> so the 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 word if you if you trace back to word Ukraine, it literally means borderlands, yes. um, mm-hmm. and and uh, their ancient tongue in ancient Slavic, and so um, the borderlands were unsettled. They were they were lawless. There is no centralizing authority. Mm-hmm. Um, since I'm all about the books. I highly recommend um, a book called Imperial Boundaries. Mm. Yes, here um, by Mister or Doctor uh, Brian uh, Boeck. Um, he wrote a very excellent book talking about these borderlands and how the Cossacks played an instrumental role in both settling them and uh, bringing law and order to these areas during the uh, era of Peter the First. Wow. Now, so these just areas listeners, they just were, to give context, uh, ends uh, book recommendation. The the first time we had him on the podcast. He, it was episode 79, A and B. He gave top 10 book recommendations about the North Caucasus. And we specifically told him no books shorter than 500 pages. So um, I'm confident this book um, does meet that requirement. Make sure to check it out. <laughs> um, so they, uh, because of this, they were co-opted by the various um, political entities in the re- region, uh, at that time being the Ottoman Empire and the uh, Muscovite state, because it was not the Russian Empire yet until Peter's reign, when he became the first emperor uh, for the title of Russia. Huh. Um, they had been co-opted as, essentially, at the beginning by the Russian state as uh, guards for caravans and for um, like missionary groups and uh, embassy um Diplomats, huh. uh, which they serve a very similar function today and as well. Huh. Um, as a matter of fact, if you go to the city of Astrakhan, they have uh, Cossack guards of the Cossack, um, the Astrakhan host, which are a group of Cossacks in that region. So Cossacks um, are broken up into several different hosts, with the wow. host being a, a group of Cossacks. And so it's the region which they, um, for lack of a better term, administrate and or protect and they've served this purpose uh, at least since Peter the Great's era in Russia. And their job has, or roles, have morphed and evolved for the last 200 years. No kidding. Wow. So they, I mean, it sounds like geographically, there in the beginning, they were kind of right in the middle of like where these empires were meeting. Mm-hmm. The, the Russian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, um, and essentially from that, their identity formed as kind of whatever you want to call it. They're they're described. They're described as like free societies on the rivers. Uh, They're very, at least in that area when they're first established as a community of the, these uh, all male uh, military um, uh, communities. They uh, are very skilled in in the raiding, but particularly with on horseback, because of course it's wide open step. They're competing with step nomads, like the, uh, Kalmyk peoples along with the uh, the Nogai Tartars mm-hmm. and these these different groups which are equally as adept if not more so in riding and, and fighting and, on horseback mm-hmm. but they also oddly enough are very skilled in pontooning um, yeah. they would raid on the rivers um, in boats and so there are a lot of um, both stories and um, artworks that have been made of Cossacks on uh, raids on the Don River, sure. Dnieper River and Dnestra Rivers um, raiding, raiding along those riverways. Wow. And that's why a lot of the host names are river names. So in the North Caucasus, for example, the two primary hosts that exist now are the Kuban and Terek hosts, ah. which are the Kuban and Terek rivers in the North Caucasus. Sure. The Kuban being the easternmost um, uh, river that's the largest in terms of its, um, its flow. And then the Terek River, 
on the, or excuse me, the Western end and then the Tarek on the Eastern sure. end in Dagestan and Chechnya. Um, Incidentally and unrelated, both names of upright piano brands from the Soviet era. Tarek and <laughs> Kuban. There we go. Wow. Well, you, you can see there the impact of the rivers yeah, uh, then on a cultural a aspect, right? Yeah. So um, these these hosts would gradually morph into from a particular host called the Zaprosian Cossacks in Ukraine to the Don host, which would uh, settle in what we call the Don region, a famous city um, viewers and or listeners might know as Rostov on Don, uh-huh. Rostov na Danu. Uh, so the Don host was established in the 17th century, and particularly they. Huh. Uh, their agreement with the czar was to have non-extradition of their their people in terms of a Cossack committed the crime. He was not going to be um, taken uh-huh. by the Russian authorities uh-huh. from the Cossack host. Wow. The right to refuge, which is very important. So the Cossacks have a, a law where if you are a, a, um, a criminal who is fleeing authority and you join the Cossack host on your own accord, you are... You have a right to refuge. You have that right as a member of the, as a community. Hmm. Uh, they were supposed to be tax exempt. Very important. And also they could carry firearms, which is another, another very important thing. So they're kind of like the, well, for an American analogy, they're kind of like the, uh, the, the Minutemen right. of the, of the Russian huh. empire. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, I'm pretty sure there's some groups in America that would really relate to what you're saying, <laughs> saying right. about the yeah. Cossacks. Right. <laughs> but are they as good um, at pontooning? Wow. So they, oh, yeah. um, Wow. I mean, this is so interesting. I, I didn't know any of this. Um, so you're saying they started kind of migrating down the Don region. Rostov on, uh, on Don is kind of right at the border with Ukraine. And then mm-hmm. um, you mentioned the Kuban host, which is uh, Krasnodar area, Western Caucasus. Terra coast is more central to Eastern mm-hmm. Caucasus. Um, let's f- help us fast forward to the Russian Caucasus war, which was mid uh, 18th century to mid 19th century. This was really, I think where this is kind of the time in history that people associate the Cossacks. How did they become such a prominent part of this war? Yes. Um, <laughs> so the, the Don host back at the end of the um, 1600s was broken up by the Russian empire because of several revolts. Um, and so essentially the estimate is one out of 10 Don Cossacks fled to the North Caucasus, uh-huh. where they established they established themselves as um, again their same roles as border guards and or um, caravan uh, escorts in Dagestan around the um, Arakan River, and these groups served the Shamkar of, of the city of Tarki back during that time, and they established themselves in the communities and learned the local customs and the local languages. Uh, uh, the Kuban uh, Cossacks and the Terra Cossacks especially. And they all integrate out of several different hosts, um, which I don't think we'll probably have uh, time to get into, but it's, it's, it's not as important as that the Kuban and the Terek are the hosts that establish themselves on these rivers right. in the West and North Caucasus. And they become functionaries for the Russian Empire, um, particularly during the era of Catherine the Great and Alexander the First. Right. Why Catherine's era is important is uh, about twenty five thousand Cossacks on the Volga River basin. Mm-hmm. So Volga Cossacks immigrate to the North Caucasus huh. based on her land grants and privileges she's granting to these Cossack hosts huh. in that region. So land grants are pretty cheap. Um, the Russians, uh, similar to the United States government during uh, this that era, um, want to. 
expand and bring settlers into unsettled regions. Right. That way they're easier to administer. And also the Cossacks then serve as a buffer uh, between Russian, Russian settlers coming in from the interior and also Novorossiya being, being Western Russia and Ukraine into the Caucasus. That way the Cossacks protect them while, while the um, Russian settlers settle the land. Um, so Cossacks would establish border forts, uh, which I call Stanitsas. Huh. And a Stanitsa is a village which is a fortified uh, area which has some farming involved in it. Um, but Cossacks would primarily be the guards of the village. And so it was required that every uh, family had to provide a young man um, who could have his own arms, his own rifle or musket, his own uh, shotgun, kinjal, um, his own weaponry, his own horse and materials uh, to be summoned whenever the the need arise to defend this village. And so the idea wow. was to have at least a thousand soldiers for every Sunitsa, which could rally within five minutes to defend either that particular town sure. or also a town uh, maybe 25 miles away. And so these Tanitsas were set up within 25 uh, miles of each other. So that way they could be a huh. single, a lack of a single fire to say, for example, if a raiding party came once to a, a Snitsa could ring a bell or fire a cannon and that could be heard from that distance. And if they needed help, that wow. Snitsa could come and, and, and help them out. Would you say more or less there was a kind of um, dotted line of Stanitsas from the Western Caucasus right smack through the region, kind of mm -hmm. a line of them establishing an un unwritten border, basically? Yes, essentially um, about the middle of the 19th century, so let's say about 1840, 1850. Uh, so this is during the height of the Caucasus Wars that you had the establishment of what they called the Tarek uh, the Kuban, the Mazdok, and the Azov lines. And so these were lines huh. of Stanitsas and fortifications, which were set up on the frontier, um, which kind of blurred the borders of what we now think of the borders of, of the Russian state and then the uh, tribal groups in North Caucasus, along with the um, Ottoman Empire. So, for example, Fort, uh, the city of Mazdok uh, was settled in 1763, mm -hmm. uh, the city of Stavropol, the capital, Stavropol Krai, was settled in 1777. Mm. Vladikavkaz was settled by Terra Cossacks in 1784. And the city of Ekaterinodor, which we now call Krasnodar, mm. was settled in 1794. So these all began as fort fortresses originally, which were manned by a, a mix of Russian imperial soldiers and Cossacks to supplement wow. their forces. And the Russians would rely on the Cossacks to to help supplement their troops in the region. So by the time of, say, for example, eight, 1820, and this is from records from General um, Alexei Petrovich um, Imarov, the, one of the very famous generals in the Caucasus Wars, hmm. um, his records indicate that in 1820, when he reorganized the army from the separate Caucasian and Georgian Caucasian or Georgian Army Corps, he, he reorganized the army. There are around, um, according to his estimates, 15,000 Cossacks of the line during that time. And they would expand later on in the 1840s to around 55,000 being a liberal estimate. Wow. And by the end of the, the war, so say, for example, 1864, 1865, there would be over 150,000 Cossacks which were stationed on the line. So wow. they're protecting them from southern attack basically is that was that the idea of Catherine the Great that they would be a southern yes so mm. I think that this is helpful I mean even I'm looking at the map 
in my mind, you have the mountains, which are sort of the natural land barrier. You know, that's that's a land barrier, but you've got a whole coastline there along the Black Sea. So is that where more of the concern would be from? Like, where were they concerned that the that attacks would be coming from? Very good question. Um, and that, that also relates into the different hosts within the Caucasus in particular. So the Tarek line is established um, early on because Peter the Great had made a campaign in 1722 in Dagestan where they captured the city of Derbent. Mm. Mm. And so Russians had control over this region for a while until several treaties with the, uh, the, the Qajar Empire, the Persian Empire, had established them to recede that territory. But they established this line particularly because they expanded so far south into Dagestan that they needed around the Tarek River a fortification line. The um, Azov-Mazdak line, so the Strait of Azov, or the Sea of Azov, um, by, this, by the, the Kerch, Kerch Strait that's by Crimea mm. and, um, yep. and and Russia. This area was also fortified because they, the Russians had made a campaign against the Ottoman Empire and have taken the Fortress of Azov, which was a very um, important city for the Don Cossacks 100 years before. Uh, they had traded with the, the people who lived in Azov, and had established good relations, and so this city is a for the Don host was a a era of commerce, an era of of knowledge, an era of of gathering. Um, so they move over, make this line. Uh, another line created is Cuban defense line, which is on the Cuban River, and also the Black Sea line, okay. which is on the Black Sea coast. Yeah. So they establish several lines at different times, which are then co opted by different Cossacks, bra- Cossacks branching from the Don hosts, which form the Black Sea Cossack host and the Kuban host and the Gabinsky and Tarek hosts, so all these huh. different hosts, which maintain their own regions and establish their own ethnic identities over 100 years based mm-hmm. on the cultural impacts they have with other uh, tribal groups in the region. So, for example, the, the Kuban <clears throat> line is very um, influential in the uh, establishment of fighting the Karachai people and the sure. uh, Circassian nations. Right. Whereas the Terra Cossacks would mainly uh, fight and interact with Chechens, Arvars, uh, a lot of the Dagestani nations um, in that area, just because of the geographical uh, vicinity. Gotcha. And they would co-opt the the cultural attire. So Cherkeska is very important, um, being the kaftan with the <coughs> gazeri, which are the the cartridges on the breast pockets. Yep, yep. Um, they would co-opt this because they say, "Oh, this looks this is one. It looks great. It looks awesome. <laughs> one one, one <laughs> of the great good sense one, of fashion." One, one, Right, good sense of fashion looks great. It's practical. Uh, the, the the pockets you can pull out your your powder flasks very easy for your your muskets and your rifles later on. Uh, you have uh, your kidjal, which is a dagger, and you have your shashka, which is a, a saber at the time. And so they adapted and co opted the local military attire, fashions, uh, words, um, mes- methods of farming. Um, cuisine that the uh, local nations did because it was something that the Cossacks would do from the time when they were established. So they would co-opt the language of the Tartars, for example, 100 years before and their sabers uh, and their their uh Which their kind of makes sense because uh, they were not a people. They were sort of, uh, they became a people over this, you know, over this 100 years. And so that, there's, you sort of can't do anything except absorb ex- absorb aspects of the cultures around you. Um yeah, so that, Precisely right. So that makes a lot of sense. It's interesting that they would co-opt, in a sense, the the cultures of those they're defending against. And that was sort of my follow-up question, just conceptually. They're creating these lines in large part against the Caucasus peoples in the mountains because those were not yet under Russian domain. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Yeah, they they um they establish these forts on what, what we think of the front line of the front range of the Caucasus. Okay. So um and of course they the caveat of this is the Russian Empire expanded into Georgia around um, 1801 when they annexed the Georgian state officially and during Alexander I's reign. And they had to also protect the Dariel Pass and that road, which would be called a mil- Georgian military highway, um, created in uh, the 18, uh, 1818, if I remember correctly. And there's a large line that goes straight through North Caucasian territory. And you also have to defend both flanks of that line. So that's also equally important. So communications and supplies can reach Tbilisi and Vatikavkaz without being attacked by uh-huh. Circassians on the on the western side, and then uh, Chechen and Arvar tribesmen on the eastern side. Uh-huh. Um, so they they are able to to cement themselves as functionaries and border guards um, within the Russian uh, state, especially during Alexander's reign, because they proved themselves in battle during the Napoleonic Wars, and they gained the sovereign's trust. So during the the Napoleonic Wars, um, they saved the lives of Alexander I, the Prussian king, along with the Austrian sovereign during the same battle, Battle Mm -hmm. of the Nations, which we're very famous for. There's a a wonderful uh, painting which is depicted of this battle, um, by Carl uh, Ricklin, um, that was made in 1813, depicting this uh, the savoring of the sovereigns. Uh, so they gain a lot of trust, and because of that trust, mm. the the Russian state begins to utilize them in more active roles, both in the military at a formal capacity, and also within the emperor's own bodyguard. So before you and get so, to that, let me just—is this the kind yeah. of thing where, like, little little boy Cos- Cossacks sort of are, grow up and? It's like a guild in a sense. It's an ethnicity and a guild where it's sort of predetermined who you are and what you're going to do. I mean, what about all the little like Cossack children who wanted to be figure skaters or things like this? Like, <laughs> yeah, um, there there is there is no such thing until the modern era of a Cossack figure skater. Yeah, okay, just um, wondering about that. Yeah, so the, if, yeah, so if we have that, any Cossack that's, that's figure very, skaters listening. <laughs> that's a very important. That's a very important question, Eli, and I'm glad you asked it. So, at the beginning, the Cossacks are a very inclusive, multi-ethnic communities, which speak a variety of languages from Russian, Ukrainian, various dialects of Tartar, etc. Now, after the co-option by the Russian state of the uh, Cossack host, particularly the Don host, which informs the other, is the parent host of the hosts in the Caucasus. Um, they then become a more exclusive um, ethnic group as opposed to a uh, conglomeration of different peoples. Hmm. And the reason why they do this is for security, um, and also they want to protect their their, their privileges. So the Russian state wants wants, uh, subjects which are going to be loyal to them, and they essentially become a a class of subject in in the Russian uh, sense where Cossacks have more privileges, rights, and responsibilities than, say, ethnic Russian peasantry. Wow. Cossacks look upon Russians very, in this era, very disdainfully, uh, especially if they're peasants. They look at them as cowardly. They look at them as, as people who can't defend themselves. Um, they, they kind of really think of the Russian soldier in the Imperial Army as nothing more than a, than a, a serf with a gun and who's not really at the same level as they are. And they essentially form a military caste within the Russian empire. Uh, hmm. um, the, the equivalent would somewhat be the Janissaries in the Ottoman empire sure. in terms of being hired the soldiers, which are, are born and raised to, to fight for the Ottoman state. But without the, um, this, the religious caveats of, of having to convert or, uh-huh. 
without the um, the caveat of being a so for example an, an janissary would be a Christian boy taken at a young age converted to Islam raised as, as a Muslim and fight for the Ottoman state whereas Cossacks the expectation was that you were um, born in the community uh, especially as a man that you had the the rights and privileges to to hunt to fish to trap and to and to fight and so these were your jobs right. whereas Cossack women um, when women started becoming parts of the community to have Cossack children, and that's when we, when women become a part of the Cossack community, you then start to have a Cossack ethnicity because women are the not only children bearers, but they're the culture bearers. Mm. Yep. Um, wow. To quote, to quote, um, uh, ethnographer um, Tim Edison is a, a, the women are culture bearers. So women help establish a culture in the home. Uh, they help teach language. They help teach traditions. Men do that too, but since primarily speaking during this era men are out fighting or doing doing work and women are are at the home um cossack women are are known uh, especially in the literature of the time for being very independent mm. very um hard working um just as capable as their men in terms of their their um prowess in the community but they just serve different roles so women would farm women would have the expectation to, to fight and <coughs> die beside their husbands and brothers um, when the Stenitsa was attacked, but they weren't the ones that were actively sure. um, raiding or doing things with their with their menfolk. Wow. So let me ask um, in. Um, so it sounds like <clears throat> Cossacks, uh, their alliance was to the Russian Empire as far as their kind of job was to serve their purposes, right? Um, mm-hmm. I'm assuming they spoke the Russian language, uh, at least those yes. hosts that were in Russia, but they kind of took on the dress and some of the customs of the local Caucasus peoples. Uh, I mean, what did the Cossacks have their own preferred religion or how did that question? Was it kind of a little bit of everything? So the, the Cossacks, since they come from uh, Slavic originally a mix of Slavic and Tartar um, uh, peoples, when they were first established as these, again, multi-ethnic free communities, there no one cared what your religion was. So you could be a Muslim from Tartar background who had escaped your clan because you did a crime or because you were ostracized for whatever reason and join the host, and no one cared. Mm. Um, as a matter of fact, even during the Caucasus Wars, the expectation was that a primary trait of a Cossack was to be bilingual. So not only would you speak either Russian Ukrainian, but you'd also speak Tartar or speak... Kamik or speak uh, Kamuk or Chechen or any of the local mm. languages okay. so you could have interaction because you're not you're not fighting constantly. You're you're the majority of the time that you are trading and interacting with your local um, uh, peoples in the region. Mm. And so you're you fighting is going to be a same thing that you do maybe 10 percent of the time when you just you're protecting them and or expanding because the, the general in the local area says, OK, K boys are coming into the area where the czar wants us to do another expansion. So get get some guys over from the Stenitsa and come with me to help me fight. Until then, they're they're trading with Chechens, they're trading with Circassians, interacting with them. So this relationship is very is hmm. bilateral and is complicated. Um, Cossacks have a, a huge respect for the fighting abilities and the culture of the local North Caucasian peoples, and that's why they and and main mainly co-opted a lot of their weapons in their dress. Yeah, sure. Huh. It's because they you, flattery is a it's a serious form of flattery is an imitation. Right. Um, so huh. you, you imitated, imitated what they had because A, it worked well and B, it was something that was local and it wow. helped you assimilate into the environment. And more importantly, because you're assimilating, assimilating with the environment, it makes you a more effective soldier when there, the not, time arises to defend and or fight against your enemies. Mm. So you know your enemy's language, you know your enemy's customs, you know your, your enemy's mm. fighting style. Wow. So it, it makes you better fighters. Um, 
So they, they come in, and when the Russian state co-ops them, of course, the Russian, uh, Russian state as their official religion is, is uh, orthodoxy. And Cossacks then start to have a very profound impact within their religious identity, that they become mm-hmm. essentially uh, crusaders for orthodoxy. And when I say crusader, meaning that they're, very, they're zealous to orthodoxy, uh-huh. to their orthodox faith. Huh. Um, there is a, a, a expectation that to be a Cossack, you are a Christian man, particularly an Orthodox Christian man. Um, and they start having religious banners, religious icon, um, imagery within their, their, um, communities. Wow. Uh, and so a, a Cossack host would, would be, and that's this expectation today is that when Cossack cadets, Cossack boys, when they're 13 or 14, they have religious services on top of their ceremonies when they're initiated into the host as, as men. Wow. Um, so they are, hmm. they are more religious um, in some aspects, and even the, the Russian uh, peasantry were, and also Russian citizenry are today during the time. So they become kind of a, the military arm of, of the Russian state, not only on a civic sense, but also on a religious sense. Wow. Um, also because they're fighting, fighting as Muslims. Um, so this becomes, this identity then becomes very established yeah. during the Caucasus Wars right. because the majority of the people who they're fighting against are Muslims. Right. right. Um, I mean, would you so, say, this is interesting for me to hear. I didn't realize they were kind of, like you said, almost zealous crusaders of orthodoxy. Uh, from what I understand, uh, some Caucasus peoples had adopted Islam before the Caucasus mm-hmm. Wars, but it was, it was really the onset of the wars that basically across the, the region, the, the Caucasus right. peoples, they adopted Islam because they were being attacked by right. Christians, Christians. Right. Would you right. say the Cossacks were like a big reason for that since they were really on the front edge leading well, the attack? Well, I'd, or? I'd, I'd say that the, the Cossacks, the, the exact same thing happens to the Cossacks. The Cossacks become more religiously devout because of their fighting against the Muslims at the same time. Oh, wow. So it's, 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 huh. it's very, it's very culturally syncretic that the, the relationship of the conflicts, um, both wow. on a macro and micro level are impacting their religious beliefs. So on one hand, you're having the Russian state, which is, um, Orthodox, which is inco- incorporating you and paying you to fight, um, to protect their assets and their, their huh. lands. And you're fighting a, a <laughs> enemy that happens to be majority Muslim. Whereas on the opposite spectrum, you have the Caucasian tribesmen, which are more, more or less, I don't, I don't want to say that they're not religiously devout, but they have a lo- animistic and pagan beliefs along yeah. with Christian beliefs for a longer time than they were before uh, they converted to Islam. Mm-hmm. And Andrew, you're absolutely right, is that the, what they call Gazavat um, in, in Arabic, which is like a military campaign of holy war, is is essentially proclaimed in 1832 by Imam Ghazi Muhammad. Huh. And he, he is a catalyst, right. which then says, okay, well you, you need to need to be a more devout Muslims because these Christian invaders are coming into your land. So convert to Islam, be a part of the imamate. We're going to start jihad against them because we're defending ourselves. Wow. And so therefore uh, you will have these rights and privileges as a member of the, of the Ummah, the, the people, the community in, in Islam. Uh, so you have these crystallizations of, of identities based on the conflicts and interactions that they're having. Because before then, the, the Cossacks weren't, yeah. weren't uh, viewed as, as orthodox particularly. But now, especially in today's society, um, they have become a symbol for what it means to be, to be orthodox Christians who are willing to defend the faith. So wow. to what Boy, extent, Ian, do you think 
any of those dynamics live on, particularly in the North Caucasus. And I want to be careful here because I think that there can be repercussions or um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like there can be carryovers that are not directly militaristic or violent, but still carry the same um, kind of framework of, Mm -hmm. you know, our religious identity is part of our, is sort of existential against this large threat. I mean, do you think that in the minds of at least some in the Caucasus that there is a continuation truly even from the Caucasus wars? I, th- I think to some degrees, yes. Um, let's, let's put it this way. And during the imperial census of, of 1897, there are around 3 million Russian subjects who identify as Cossack. And let's say, for example, because the census only counted men, let's say, for example, 5 million sure. to include women in the, in the Cossack communities. Now, fast forward to today's um, statistics of the recent population census in the Russian Federation that was done in 2020. Let me look at my notes here and find. So in 2020, the Russian census had established that there are around um, 180,000 people in the Russian Federation today which identify as Cossack when they wrote it on their census board. Really? So that, that, that... Number has dropped, and that's dropped for two reasons. As one, the Soviet era. So when the, when the Bolsheviks came around, the the Bolsheviks did not like the Cossacks because a they had privileges over the uh-huh. Russian peasantry. So there's a privilege yeah. issue. So economic an economic and privilege issue that they have. They're not e- they're not equal to what the Bolsheviks want to establish a communist state. So just like the Kulaks, the Cossacks get the get the axe. Uh-huh. Mm. Um, now to to as a caveat to that, there are Cossacks who also fight for the Bolsheviks. <laughs> so there, that it's very it's very complicated. Yeah, it but let's say for the but the majority of Cossacks fought for the White Army, um, specifically under General Tadinkin during uh, eighteen uh, or nineteen uh, eighteen to nineteen twenty two, and a lot of these Cossacks, when they were defeated from the, uh, by the Red Army in the Don region and North Caucasus, they fled to Europe and to the United States and formed their own communities there. Um, these communities are even more religiously. I don't want to use the word zealous, but they're religiously devout. Devout is a good word. There we go. They're more religiously devout mm. because they were they view themselves as the survivors and preservers of Russian Russian slash Cossack culture and Orthodox religion that was booted out by the Soviets. So that's 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 one element of that identity. Huh. Another element of that identity now um, that out of the hundred and 80,000 people in the Russian Federation today who identify as Cossacks, only 90 uh, or 900, uh, 9,500, there we go, 9,500, so 9,500 of these individuals are actively involved in the reestablishment of the Cossacks' old um, habits in the empire. So, for example, Mm -hmm. a part of border police Ah. or a part of like uh, paramilitary drills. Or these kind of things, uh, nine hundred of which, according to the census, are part of the border security in the or North Caucasus. So nine hundred huh. of that, ninety five hundred. So it's very limited. It's very exclusive. Um, I remember the city in back in twenty twelve of Krasodar had established Cossacks to be a yeah. a a separate but equal part of the the military or not military the uh, po- police structure wow. within the city of Krasodar. So you have Cossacks who perform police duties but only like beat cops if that makes sense uh-huh. so they they can't arrest they can't arrest anybody but they can they say okay uh pajalsta like my 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 good man please don't smoke here or like you know don't uh-huh. don't throw don't throw litter 
or don't don't roughhouse or don't cause a scene like in Russian laws hooliganism is a really big thing what the defines hooliganism could be like you're at a, mo- a public monument yep. to Lenin for example and you're shouting epithets you know and people are like that's not okay because you're you know my my good sir you're you're shouting epithets that might offend children or women so you please please don't do that right um huh. so they they are they're establishing their roles now in a post soviet world trying to figure out what their identity is yeah. and the Russian state has kind of co-opted that um, again because again the the Russian the Russians are looking at it. Well, you you served us pretty well during the Imperial era. You can serve us pretty well now, um, especially as border guards and as policemen. Um, now, as as Eli pointed out, there are some worries about that. Um, I I had put in a to documents that I sent to Andrew and Eli some uh, news articles that were both from Russian sources, also from English-speaking sources. Mm-hmm. And there is some contention, there is some worry, both from the English-speaking world and also from the Russian-speaking world. More importantly, from the, the North Caucasian uh, nations uh, talking about, well, we, we had we had issues with, with uh, the Cossacks in the past, uh, but I think the majority of, of citizens in the Caucasus will realize that they have more of a common common identity between North Caucasian Cossacks and North Caucasians who are native to the region, that they, they have less conflicts than what you would think. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, of course, with social media and also with news, I mean, one, one story paints the whole, whole group as, as right. bad or issues, right? So it, it is overbloat. Do you um, think, where, ca- where today, do you know, ahead. are there certain kind of places or communities where they mainly are located today? So Krasnodar is a big one. Okay. Uh, the city of Krasnodar. Um, Stavropol um, is a big one as well. They have a military academy in Stavropol, and Stavropol is one of their... Huh. Um, what's, what's a good word for this? Star, Stavropol is, is, a, is a site where a lot of Cossack history is at, and also a lot of Cossack religious history is at. Mm-hmm. Um, so Stavropol, again, city, city of, meaning literally city of the cross, Stavropol. Um, a lot of Cossacks go there to to pay respects to Catherine the the Great mm-hmm. um, because she helped establish this community um, with funds to the Russian Empire and with the Cossack service. Um, Mozdok still has a lot of Cossacks involved in it. Um, okay, that's an. You'll, you'll, yeah. Probably, yeah. you'll probably have um, smatterings of Cossacks um, throughout the region, which um, are in what they call uh, kind of like Cossack guilds or like Cossack Cossack club, um, which is interesting too because there's right now a. a a movement that's trying to define what is Cossack, what isn't Cossack. So, for example, in Ingushetia, in Ingushetia of all places, <clears throat> now keep in mind what we all talked about at the beginning. <laughs> there are about there are around seven thousand members of the Cos of the English Cossack organization. Really? Wow. Seven thousand. Three hundred of those are ethnic Slavs. So uh-huh. the rest of them are ethnic English. Oh wow. Yeah. Who are Muslim? Yeah. Right. So. Again, co- these layers of identity. Huh. Um, so they uh, they are advocating for uh, land rights, for the legal right to bear arms within the Russian Federation, and they want salaries of border guards. Hmm. So and, and they're they're and actively right now still, in twenty twenty one partitioning the Russian government for their recognize their to be recognized by the Russian government. And this is not so these are seven thousand. It's, it's not a meritorious. Yeah, it's not a meritorious thing. Like we have. It's not based on our training, our military service, per, like personally. It's our ethnic identity that is the this, like you said, our caste almost. Well, it's 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 both. It's both. So, like the the this particular group of English Cossacks, they have their ancestry were were Muslim Cossacks who fought for the empire. Sure. And and now and and 
have these have kept on developing these skills okay. and now want these rights and privileges back. It just sounds to me like, huh. well, if my grandfather fought in World War II, I'd like to be able to have open carry. Like, I mean, to me, there's not a well. The, a, the caveat, the caveat to that would be what my aunt, as an American thinking about this, it's very mm-hmm. well. You told, you can't you can't, you can't think, think that way. You can't think about it from the fun American from American perspective. Well, right. You got to think about it from a from a um, a huh. bloodlines perspective. So as yep. a Cossack. You're, you have a duty to your stonetsa, to your to your host, wow. to to continue on that tradition. So would a host be um, sort of so, similar to a tape or a, a um, what's the other word? Um, clan. A, to to clan. whom kind of like a, a, in its origin, like it was an agreed upon kind of almost like covenanted group. Yeah. A host, a host is, is a church equivalent would be a tip. Yeah, yeah it's it's it's, cl- it's a clan based structure, yeah. especially when you get to um, when Cossacks have again when when women become part of yep. community and you start actually having having children involved. You need a, a tradi- you need a established tradition and institution which can teach families traditions and move on. So that's exactly what a, what the host wow. is now. They have they have some relationship to each other, um, back and forth. So maybe like your you know your three three cousins removed from another guy in the host yep. Yep. or whatnot. Um, now in North Ossetia, there are 12,000 members of active Cossack organization with seven subdivisions, and there are 43 local Cossack organizations within Ossetia alone. So Ossetia and the Cossacks wow. are used now within border guards and also within government functionaries, say for example, within the SFB being border patrol or within uh, police and Vladikavkaz. Huh. So that's currently as of today. I didn't realize it was so active. Like essentially the... The only thing I've seen with, I know that these stanitsas, like that term still exists today. Essentially, mm-hmm. it's treated kind of like a town. Uh, yeah, it's, people it's, say it's a Cossack village. Right. Um, I know those are kind of south of Pitigorsk. There's a line of them. The, the May 9th parade every year in Pitigorsk, you see there's a group, troop of Cossacks basically who mm-hmm. are marching. But it's, it sounds like they're a lot more active than I realized in the, in the country and in the region today. Um, there, especially after 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed yep. and when Russia was trying to figure out what it meant to be Russian, the Cossacks equally were trying to figure out what it meant yep. to be Cossack. Wow. Yep. Because, of course, there were Cossack soldiers who fought both for the Soviet army during the war and also for the Nazis. You know, And so that, that's also another underlying thing of identity, too, is the Cossacks who fought for the Nazis wanted to take their lands back from the communists. I mean, to me, it feels mm. like this funny, mm-hmm. it's like part um, heritage group, part like... Veterans Association, you know, part secret <laughs> yeah. society like um, the Masons. I mean, you know, well, they're, they're not. So, I wouldn't say they're not so much like a secret society because Cossacks are very open about who they yeah, are. Yeah, I don't mean um, secret in the in that sense, but like uh, it's it's the closest thing I have to sort of a a voluntary um, club that that is so um, all consuming in a sense. You know, like the secret societies of our parents' generations or the societies, maybe oh, not oh, secret, yeah. you know, but it was like we're going to sign up and this is going to become our our clan. It's definitely it's definitely their life. Um I have a, a couple friends who are who are ethnic Cossacks from the from the Cuban region. And um one one of them particularly who went to university said why right after I'm getting university I'm joining the army. And when I am done with my my mandatory uh, service, I'm going to join Stanitsa as one of my uh, the border guards in the region in, in Krasnodar. Wow! Um, so that way they he can just you know continue that tradition uh, because for them it's it's about all about defending defending Russia and about defending the mm. his community mm. and, and his home. And for him, it, it did it. His identity was that I was born Cossack. To quote him in one of the interviews that I did with him, I was born Cossack. I will die Cossack, and my children will equally do the same. Oh. 
And he also had pointed out that that his I would defend any member of of the Russian Federation regardless of the creed. So it doesn't huh. matter if they're they're Muslims or or whatnot. It didn't matter. So anybody who is a Russian citizen, if Russia is ever attacked, that he will take up the 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 Kalashnikov and and fight for the, wow. for the state. Yeah. Because you, that's what he sees as his responsibility as a Cossack. I, I know, like within some of the different Caucasus nationalities, um, not everyone, but many feel strongly about marrying somebody from your group who speaks your language. Um, mm-hmm. So you can help carry that line on, pass it on to the next generation. Do you know, is there a strong sense of that within Cossacks? Only marry a Cossack so you can pass the traditions on, et cetera, et cetera. I think for, now I would, I would have to do a lot of ethnographic research to make a, a more informed opinion. But my gut tells me that Cossack women, are their expectation is to marry a good Orthodox boy. So whether it be mm. a, a, a Russian or a Cossack, but presumably be a Cossack. Yeah. Whereas a Cossack man, it would, I don't think they have any problem if, they, if an, and he fell in love with an English woman and wanted to bring an English woman into the community. Uh-huh. I don't think they care. Uh-huh. Um, huh. As long as they raise their children like Cossacks and Orthodox, right? Gotcha. Um, so they're, and, and it's, it's very similar in a lot of North Caucasian societies too. Like, um, one of my Carbidine friends would be like, yeah, my mother wouldn't have cared, wouldn't care if, um, I married a Russian woman, but my, my mother and father would care if my, my sister married a, a, a Russian man. Right. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, so, well, let's, let's pivot here. This is so interesting. And, um, yes. <laughs> going from zero to a hundred for sure today and my knowledge on this subject, um, <laughs> I know I've read some 19th century uh, literature uh, featuring the Cossacks. Um, some of the most famous uh, literature coming out of Russia is from that time period in the Caucasus. What would be some of the, the top um, books you would read, recommend to our listeners if they wanted to kind of learn more about Cossacks from uh, Russian literature? Well, I definitely hearken back to our first episode and Tolstoy is the Cossacks. Uh, it was one of my my ten books and my top book recommendations. Um, I think I, if I remember quoting correctly last last time I was on the podcast. So this is like Russian's version of James Fillmore Cooper's, Cooper's Last of the Mohicans right. in terms of uh, its cultural impact. Huh. Um, there is another book by Tolstoy. Well, it's more of a short story. It's not a book called The Raid, um, which he okay. published in 1854. And so this is a a account which he of his observations of him serving within the, if I remember correctly, the 20th Artillery Regiment within a Cossack Stanitsa. I forget the mm. name of the Stanitsa off the top of my head. Um, if you want, I can find it later and put it in the show notes. Um, but he was part of the Stanitsa, his, his regiment, and so he got to really get in the, in the roots of what Cossack life was like in the village, from everyday life to fighting beside, beside uh, oh, them. Okay. And uh, the raid talks about just, it, it's a raid on a, on a Chechen village and what what the tactics were and what, how they interacted with the uh, local population. And so there's a lot of, a lot of sense in that, just like in the Cossacks, there's a lot of downtime. There's a lot of the Cossacks are, are there, they're waiting for orders. They're, they're doing their thing at home and then they get called up. Okay, let's go and we do a raid every now and then we're going to do a raid to suppress the local resistance in the region. So they go in, they do the raid and come back home. And what are the, what are the consequences and ramifications of doing that? Uh, Tolstoy definitely had, Later on in his life, a more pacifist um, aura about him. Uh, so he was very negative about the Russian state in that area. Mm. Um, 
However, there was there is also literature that you can you can read from the era too, from biographies of people saying, "Yeah, we we don't have any qualms what we did there because we were defending our homes." Um, so again, it's multifaceted levels of of identity, multifaceted sure. levels of of experience. Yeah. Um, another another good um a, a novel uh which I'm I forget the author's name, but the title is "The Cossack and the Cowboy." Okay. Um, which is a it's a fiction. That's based off some historical events. Um, for example, the Buffalo Bill Cody's shows during the eighteen nineties. Uh, a lot of the the writers in the in the um, horsemanship were Cossack immigrants. Oh, oh wow! Which came by? Huh. So if you if you look at the the registers of the names of people, especially if they were they were um, playing the roles of of Native American tribesmen in the shows, they painted them brown. And had them ride around on horseback in Native American regalia. And this is how a lot of Cossacks got jobs when they came. It's like, hey, I'm a good horseman. I can ride wow. a horse very well. Wow. Um, so this this novel kind of takes some of those real historical elements and then has a relationship between a cowboy and a Cossack. Because the, the author is trying to make a, a point that the American cowboy and the American Cossack are pretty similar. Um. There's there's some good literature in the imperial period, especially from uh, the surviving biographies of members of the Russian aristocracy. Okay, um, a, a good book I'd recommend. It just briefly talks about the Cossacks, but it's a diary from um, a woman by the name of um, Olga Olga uh, Tatyanovna, if I remember correctly. Okay. And um, she talks about her life with a Cossack bodyguard and how he was so devoted to her in service. Um, and you see a lot of these these memoirs of Cossack bodyguards since they were part of the emperor's royal escort, which functioned as hmm. a mix between bodyguards, dignitar- uh, hosts for dignitaries, and um, part of like the emperor's arm in the capital for, for policing. Huh. Um, they serve the royal family with devotion and how these aristocrats missed having their um, Cossack escorts with them um, as friends, but also as protection because during the time when the empire collapsed, a Soviet state was very predatory upon people who appreciated and or lived in the, the old established uh, order. Sure. Huh? So man, wow. wow. Good suggestion. But that, that the first two, I think, probably are good starting points uh, for our listeners. Uh, most people have heard of Tolstoy obviously one of the most famous Russian authors of all time, but the one book's called the Cossacks and then the other is the raid. So yeah, the raid. Great, uh, great recommendations, Ian. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, in a lot of ways, this is, it it just has similarities. I'm thinking of, uh, you know, when, uh, many Circassians had to, were forced to leave Russia at the end of the Caucasus war. Um, they went to Turkey and then mm-hmm. from Turkey, different groups of them went to towards the Middle East and stayed in Syria, Jordan, Israel. But I know today with the um, Royal Jordanian family that the guards, uh, basically the, the, guard. the, the Royal Security are Circassians. Yeah, they're all Circassians. Right. And that, I mean, it just reminds me, obviously there's really big differences with Cossacks in Russia and Circassians in Jordan, but essentially they're born into that and that's their identity there. And they're highly respected for their loyalty, their kind of military prowess, um, Mm -hmm. you know, how they can wield a sword, et cetera, et cetera. 
So right. just interesting hearing, yeah, how Cossacks had some of those what's, same qualities. What's, what's even what's even a, a even more interesting story is that both during the reign of Emperor Nicholas I and uh, Alexander II, Circassians and Cossacks fought side by side together in the guard. Hmm. That is interesting. Because hmm. so here here's a I'm going to do a book plug. Talk about a tome. <laughs> so this is tome Mounted plug. Units of Russia by Dmitri, Dmitri um, Kolokov, spelled K L O C H K O V, and he is the um, one of the curators at the um, museum at Zarsky Solo, and he does a lot of research on the guard. He's probably the foremost expert on the, the what they call officially the, his Imperial Majesty's Imperial Convoy. Sarska Silo. Um, Are you talking about up outside of St. Petersburg at Catherine's pal- right. palace? Okay. Yep. Gotcha. Past palace, yep. Yeah. So these, these members of the guard were originally made in uh, 1828 and they were taking North Caucasian noblemen and Cossacks and training them to be guards for the emperor. And they formed a unit that lasted from 1828 to 1881. And they fought side by side together. So you have Muslims fighting alongside Christians, North Caucasians fight alongside Cossacks for the Russian state. And the talk about the brotherhood involved. You know, these are guys that come from, again, it's a mutual respect. They come from similar backgrounds. They come from militaristic backgrounds. They come from similar regions, something that they can connect to together. You know, so it's, I, I love that the, the book, but also I love that, this particular unit because it describes the multifaceted layers again of their identity and it's not all black and white. And so I, what I'm trying to do through that research is when I, when I talk to people about the region is that it's not just, you know, uh, one faction against the other is that there's a lot of nuance Hmm. and the nuance is very important to understanding the role it played in history. Yeah. Because if we forget about these individuals, we forget about their accomplishments, we forget about the goodwill that they established towards one another. Hmm. Well said. Well, and I mean, yeah, what what you've described is kind of their role in the history of this region. Exactly. It was just this this convergence of politics, uh, military, and religion. <laughs> you know, yeah. and all all of those things standing alone, like they're strong entities. But when you put them all together, there's kind of often explosions of things like, you know, a hundred years long war, like they were a part right. of, you know? Um, so that, that really, I think gives, it gives me for sure. I'm sure our listeners too a lot more context for, um, yeah, their importance in the, the history of the region. So thanks for that, Ian. And I appreciate that your emphasis is on the complexity of it. You know, nuance can sound to me, I think it can sound like something you can dismiss like, well, if you're really interested, you can get into the nitty gritty. But the fact is, you used the word layers before. There's no one I've met in the North Caucasus or really related to the North Caucasus where layers of identity is not a really important, Ugh. helpful, kind of necessary way of, of understanding them. So this idea mm-hmm. of layers and nuance isn't just, well, when you want to get into arcane detail, it's to really actually under, try to understand it. You're going to have to... You're going to have to look at this gem from multiple aspects and look at different facets or you're not going to get it. You're going to get a caricature. Right. It's just like any individual you meet. You're not going to really know the individual until you spend time with them. And you're not going to be yeah. able to, if yes. you're not going to be able to access those layers and understand them until you spend time. It's just that some, yeah. some places and people's in history 
are a lot more compactly layered and take even right. more, <laughs> you know, mm. uh, attention. And well, especially and when they have a lot of, especially when they have a lot of baggage, right? Yeah. So, if, you know, you the the Cossacks, for example, on our topic, and at least in, in the in the Western speaking world, the the if they're familiar a little bit with Cossacks, they just think of all the those Russian bodyguards who did the programs against the Jews. Yep. Sure, right. So that's a big thing. First time I ever ran into the Cossack word Cossack was watching um, American Tale, oh. that the animated show, right? Because the Cossacks destroy Fievel's village in the first five minutes of the movie. Wow. Gosh, got it. Right? So that, that's as a, as a young, young boy, like maybe three or four and watching the movie, that's my first, that's my first impression of Cossacks, huh. you know, from a, from a, 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 ch- a children's right. movie. Right. So then if you, if you never, if you didn't expand and didn't meet Cossacks and didn't have the life experience I would have had, I would have went the rest of my life. It's like, oh, uh, the Cossacks are just, you know, you know, this warriors has come in and just take out stuff, you know? Man. You know? So. Yeah, and what you said you know, is you, you exemplify these things so well when we're talking about nuances. And Eli, you said compactly layered, <laughs> very, yeah. very, very delicately put. Um, but essentially to, to move past that, it's so easy to either stereotype or view things so just extremely black and white. But right. two things you can do to really get into that is read a lot, which you just exemplify in to the nth degree. I mean, you're I'll so say. well read on the Caucasus. Yeah. So reading is so helpful for that. Uh, and then building relationships with people, you know, and exactly. that, I mean that like, you know, as much as everything we like about the Caucasus the greatest joy for sure is the relationships we have with people, you know, yep. because you get, yep. you get into each other's lives and you see, you encounter nuance, you know? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, One of my most fond memories uh, at uh, Piatagoras is when they do the, um, the, the student festival for cultures yep. every year. And they had a, they had a table set up just for, for um, Cuban and Terra Cossacks. <sighs> and so I was huh. with my buddy because he was he was part of the the uh, the table doing food. I was like, oh, come come and experience some some Cossack cuisine. So I came in and we had we had sala and we had raw garlic. Just eating that as a, like a sala chaser. And sala, by the way, pickles. is uh, flavored lard, basically. A, a sala is yeah. a, is is smoked smoked pig fat. Yeah, like I said, <laughs> smoked, yeah, smoked pig fat. It's. It, I I like it, but you know, then again, I am you know, no. It's wanted, delicious. Wanted to just just for those yep. who don't know, it's what very tasty. Is. <laughs> yep, yep. Smoke smoke pig fat. Um, particularly not the belly of the pig, but the back of the pig. Okay. Um, it's 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 back back fat, not uh like bacon fat, not the belly. Ah, okay. Um, uh, there you go. <laughs> um, <laughs> nuance. So we exactly <laughs> nuance. Um, so we we had a lot of fun and time at the. Uh, at the festival, both eating food, participating in Cossack dances, Cossack songs. So that was that was one of my one of my very fond memories is is doing that at least within the within the context of the Cossack Caucasus. So I'll just say, yeah, it's- you you know, just being someone who studies uh, world arts, like to get different avenues of of your senses engaged, really does a lot to your whole perspective on a thing you know that books are the right first step but you know you can't get the taste of sala and garlic with your friends from that Mm -hmm. you know right there's just nothing like it yep it it helps provide personal context yes and it helps the things that make uh, the pages of your book real thanks yeah especially especially i love reading about something and 
I'm like, oh, I've been there, and I've actually touched the thing you're yes. talking about, right? Yes, I've touched it exactly, yeah. and smelled that, it. That's why I, I love. That's why I love about it. you've touched it, you smelled it, you've you've interacted with 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 the object or the person. You know, you you get a much better understanding. And then, of course, when you read, you have you can relate to them in a little bit because that way you can inquire about what you learned mm. and see whether they think that's correct. Sure. Well, well said. Right. Mm. So, man, Ian. Um, you schooled us today on, on Cossacks in the Caucasus. Thank you. This is also. I want to do. I want to do a plug real quick. Um, I have a a contact by the name of Mark Lawrence on FB, who is a. He comes from a ethnic Dagestani line, if I remember correctly. Talking to him, um, but he uh, is trained in Cossack saber techniques with the Shashka, and he wrote two manuals both volume one and two of the Cossack Sabre manual. Oh my. And he's, he's been to Russia and he's talked to Felix uh, Nagov, who is the curator at the museum of culture in uh, Nalchik. Okay. Um, so he's talked and he's a very famous swords master with the Shashka as well. So he's had interactions with individuals. So in terms of ideas, interview subjects, I highly recommend him. He okay. lives in California. Um, wow, in, okay. around the, around the Bay area. Um, and he's very active in the, um, celebrations at Fort Rus, which is one of the old Russian fortresses in North America wow. huh. when the Russians had a presence in, in, uh, California and Alaska. So he does a lot of things there and he has a YouTube channel that talks about, uh, Cossack s- saber techniques and Shashka, how you wield Shashka correctly and all that fun stuff. So oh, that might, might be fun. So wow. that's, need, that's my plug for him. I need to check his YouTube channel. He, he's a active, uh, active follower on our um, Facebook page. Did you guys meet through our Facebook page or did you know each other before that? Um, we met through several avenues. <laughs> so of course, when you're, when, when you have an interesting caucuses, you run into very, the similar people. Sure. Right. Um, so he, he and I ran into like a, a Eurasian sabers page and like <laughs> sabers of Eurasia. And then we ran. In, yeah. Obviously. Um, yeah. One of the many. Ran to the Caucasus page, one of the, one of the one of the many, and then of course through the podcast. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure so. I'm pretty sure a good friend Abdullah toured him around when he came to the Caucasus. Um, I think that's correct. Yeah. yeah. So, um, anyways, wow, great plug. Um, well, Ian, thank you. Um, this, I mean. I'm trying to think how many times better it was that you <laughs> led this discussion and, and not me. Um, but it was uh, a lot better. It was many times. Um, no offense. So, and you know, and I know you're like, a you're like on this Caucasus Island out there in the Midwest <laughs> in Nebraska. <laughs> and I'm sure you just don't, often get to interact with people who share your common passion We're, for this region. So it's, it's very difficult. <laughs> it really is. I, um, I, I at least have, at least have my mother. I can talk to because she lived in, in Russia and appreciated that because my father was like, yeah, I, I don't want to go back. But my mother's oh, like, man. yeah, I want to go back. Wow. In terms of having a, a caucuses uh, passion, I'm, I'm few and far between here. The few yeah. I really get only my, I, I only really get to really, uh, share a lot of the info at the Chiswick festival and that's about it. Yes. So no. Well, big, big props to you. You're a great um, representative for the region. Um, and uh, we consider it definitely a, a privilege to absolutely to know you. And you're a great representative it, of caucus talk. So listeners <laughs> on your, for, <laughs> for those of you who are 
on the fence and mulling your trip to the Caucasus, you can take <laughs> a partial step to South Dakota uh, to the Chislik Festival, which has been mentioned um, it, it, a lot this podcast. many times on this podcast. <laughs> Tens of times. Tens of times, where, as you may have heard, Ian has his own booth and represents and teaches on and cooks from his experience in the North Caucasus. He serves on the board. Yeah. That's right. And um, I do. No, I'm on the board. Yes. I think that we've got uh, our, our logo was represented last time because we couldn't personally physically be there. So make nope. sure to do that. Ian, we will put um, all of these things in the show notes, all of the books, and we will definitely check in on this plug for Mark Moritz. That sounds like an amazing interview. So thank you again. Listeners, please don't hesitate to reach out. Um, um, you can contact Ian just on our Facebook page. Most of the time there's a green dot. He's live like 23 hours a day. He's just there <laughs> yeah, live on the Facebook page waiting. Um, I'm, I'm hovering yeah, on that Caucasian eagle floating exactly above the, right. on the mountains. Yep, on the updraft, just waiting for some, some chit-chat and conversation. Um, but a ton of interesting stuff in this. Thanks again, Ian. Please leave us a review or a comment and reach out to us on Facebook or any other way. And when you are ready to pull that trigger, we will see you when you get here.